Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. Before we begin, some quick announcements. First, thanks so much to those of you who have filled out the Unchained survey. We have two winners for the BTC candle. They are Elizabeth Strickler and Robert Oman. Thanks to everyone who filled out the survey, as well as to Elizabeth and Robert, and to both of you, enjoy your candles. Second, as I mentioned earlier, I'm now writing a Facebook bulletin newsletter. If you're interested in the stories that we mentioned in the weekly news recap, you can get all the links delivered right to your inbox. If you're not already signed up, head to laurashin.bulletin.com and subscribe today. Finally, this week's episode is a panel discussion recorded at Unfinished Live 2021. The future is decentralized. It was a great event here in New York in late September. And if this panel interests you, be sure to check out the full program at unfinished.com. And now on to the show. Wish you could earn crypto, but don't want to spend thousands on hardware? Just download the Nodal Cash app on your smartphone. Visit nodal.com, that's N-O-D-L-E.com, to start earning Nodal Cash today. The Crypto.com app pays you up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin. Get $25 when you download the Crypto.com app with code LAURA. The link is in the description. Welcome to our panel. Here to discuss with me are Nick Grossman, who is a partner at Unions for Ventures. He's here virtually. Hello, Nick. And we also have Thomas France to my right, co-founder and GP of Signy Capital. And then um, Dylan Hickson, president of Arden Road Investments. And at the end is Rick Willard, founder of Argentic Group and managing director of World Ethical Data Foundation. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Thanks. So why don't we start by talking about how a decentralized world changes things for investors? Um, so in an ideal decentralized world, everything is kind of like user-owned and everything's a little bit more egalitarian. So how does that change things for investors in you know, uh, a world where generally the business model is kind of predicated on things not being super egalitarian? I think the decentralized web is is one is an interesting uh, term and concept, and I think one of the key things that's happening is that it's enabling more people to be owners of more things, of protocols, of DAOs, of assets, of you know systems, um, and I think that's really exciting. Um, a lot of the early people who've been participating in these networks and these projects are earning the equivalent of sweat equity. Um, and then are going on to launch new things. The need for outside capital really is decreasing as you know, as the community itself builds up wealth in assets that have been generated here and the role of investors is really changing. A lot of projects are launching without any investors at all. Um, there's, you know, projects get forked uh, and projects that launched fair to launch. Um, you know, rounds are getting, financing rounds when they happen tend to be getting tighter. Um, and smaller, uh, and so the, the role of the investor, I think, is really changing. I don't think the role of capital in the system is necessarily changing, but I think the role of like 
you know, traditional funds is definitely evolving and, and we're working to adapt to that. And so how have you tried to evolve to stay relevant? There's a, I mean, I think every generation of investing that we've been through and we've been around for 15 years through Web 2 and now into Web 3 and my partner's been investing for longer than that, I think it's forced us to, or caused us to learn new tricks. Um, you know, there's some mechanical uh, administrative changes to how we organize funds and, and the kind of activities that we undertake, whether we're, you know, staking or, you know, participating in protocols, using capital in different ways. Um, a lot of the things that we're investing in now look less like companies and more like loose collectives or DAOs where we're just one of many members and uh, the, the sort of way that we engage and participate and influence, you know, the project is changing. So uh, I, I think it's too early to say exactly how, but we're, we're learning new moves every day. Does anyone want to add? Yeah, I, I think the... Um there's a wide variety of projects that you can invest in in that, uh, in that space, and it's like generally like some very long-term projects you, you, you believe in. So it's, it's not solely that uh, you're going to invest like in, uh, in DAOs or in protocols where you're going to actually make a deal with uh, an entity that lives on the blockchain and you're going to receive a token for it. Uh, but that's a possibility. But there's also some, some companies that are like equity-based, are building like some, uh, some pick-and-shovel infrastructure play that kind of bridge the world between, uh, uh, between the real world and crypto. There's some developer tooling. So there's also all that variety of, of, um, of, uh, of project that is, uh, let's say, uh, uh, acceptable for any type of investors. But for everything to do with, uh, with uh, pure blockchain organization or pure like uh, smart contracts you're interacting with, it's true that it changes the world of the, of the investor as well. In the type of structure you need to have, you need to make sure that you, you can uh, invest in non-venture capital assets, that you can like uh, custody these tokens. And and when you once you get like these uh, these, um, these these tokens that are not like actual equity, you you also want to participate in it. So so you want to stake, you want to participate in in, in governance, you want to, to provide value and liquidity to uh, to to this protocol. So there's all setup that needs to be rethought uh, in terms of how to best participate in all these networks. Yeah, I mean, as a family office, we make a lot of venture capital investments. We are prepared now to, to hold tokens directly and, and look at alternate forms of investment. Um, in terms of the, the structure, um, you know, we're getting excited about, uh, uh, about obviously growing big companies and, you know, some of these, some of these intricate new applications, but also uh, the idea of, of financial inclusion, um, even stakeholder capitalism are some kind of new twists on capitalism that are going to be enabled by blockchain. And like, we actually, we have a family foundation. We do a lot of uh, work with social entrepreneurs. Some of what we're seeing in blockchain is starting to overlap with that. So, so I think capitalism has, has a place in this. I think it's going to be modified. Um, and, and, but we're excited about that for return perspective, but also from, from an impact perspective. Mm. And did you want to add something? Please, yeah. So let's talk about the modification of capital and what funds look like and Financial inclusion, stakeholder uh, capital. The the I, I think if we're going to look at what can be with the decentralized, democratized web, we have to look at what is. Uh, and what is is really a continuation of uh, sort of plantocracy economics, right? Plantation economics, and I mean that very seriously. The the platform, let's say Facebook in this particular case, would be a plantation. The 
workers aren't the people who work at Facebook. Those are the, the farm hands. The, um, the actual workers are us. Uh, and the crop is your data, right? So if you look at it that way, then there's a point at which you have to ask yourself, to Frank McCourt's mom's point, what do you do about that? Right? What are you going to do about that? So what we're engaged in, the business that we're engaged in, is about overturning that model, reimagining what capital looks like, reimagining what structures look like. Um, I think that in the case of tokenization and token economies, it does actually open up a place for sovereign identity. It opens up room uh, for the ownership of data. It opens up new vistas for our concept of capital and what that means in, in, in introducing human capital into the equation. So there are a lot of changes that are going to be happening over the next five, ten years uh, that will look very different from, from, I think, what funds even look like now. Uh, so I, I, would, I would add that a lot of that investment will stop, hopefully, coming from us as gatekeepers, quite frankly, because funds will invest in an array of things to see what works, and the optimization of a fund is, is a return, a financial return. So we're going to look more at things like outcomes, human outcomes, and the governance part of tokens is going to help us do that. Of course, if you invest in something, you don't want to go broke doing it. You want to make sure you make some money. But it's about communities making money, individuals owning their data, owning their rights, owning their attribution for whatever they're contributing, and then amassing in communities that then amplify and extrude value as opposed to extract it. So I think that's one of the major differences that we're talking about here. Yeah, and actually that um, leads me to my next question, which is in this world where you know we have these tokens launching and they're oftentimes saying, hey, we're a fair launch token, and then meanwhile they're kind of deriding what they call the VC coins. Are, it's very clear that if you are an early stage investor and a VC participating, then you kind of almost automatically become a whale in these governance tokens, and you have a lot of weight in these votes. So how are you guys managing that? Are you just happy to have that power, or are you, you know, trying to but kind of like shift the way things are done? I know that a lot of communities are looking at quadratic voting, too, which is a system of voting in which the number of coins or number of individual entities that vote a particular way uh, can can increase their weight if the number is greater, and if it's just whales dominating uh, on the other side of the vote, then their their weight is lessened. So, curious to hear how that's being managed. Yeah, I think it uh, comes up to to also like the, the the style of investing, and when you invest in a in a company, you've got some shares and you've got some rights and you've got like some some potential influence um, on the decision of the company. Um, well, we, we see ourselves as, uh, as uh, investors who, who want to be like next to the, the for the best interests of the, of the the companies of the founders, and when it talks about like now, it's the best interest of the community, the founding team, and all that. So we we, we try to always stick to the mantra of uh, do no harm and be like uh, uh, founder friendly, and it, it, it comes back to the to the same thing in uh, in uh, in these uh, these uh, protocols. It's about like participating. Uh, whenever you can uh, stake and participate in the network uh, to add security to the network, we do that. Whether it be by, by, by mining, by farming, by, by staking, by providing liquidity, 
um, but not so much in the role of uh, pure activism and uh, and uh, and trying to to uh, to use that dominant uh, dominant um, uh, position to influence in our in our side. Always trying to think about like uh, the community of stakeholders and act in the best interest of these networks. Okay, so just in the votes, you even just basically try not to wield your power so much. Is that what you're saying? What, what was it? Like you're not you're trying to not wield the power that you have. No, exactly. Do no harm. Um, like we review the, the governance proposal and, and we, we don't like uh, actively like uh, participate in creating those proposals. We kind of uh, review them, uh, vote for them, uh, check the, the community feedback and, and take a decision from there. Oh, I see. I, I also feel like a lot of firms are just figuring this out and how to strike the right balance. And I think um, one thing to point out is that most VCs, you know, historically looking at regular, when investing in regular companies are owning maybe 10, 15, 20%, and they have, you know, with that minority control position, which is what we're used to. Um, so we're not coming at this generally from the point of expecting to have sort of real control. Uh, but now as we're investing more in token networks, uh, the ownership percentages are way, way lower. So, you know, whereas we may just have 10 to 20% of a company, now we have a half a percent to three or maybe 4% of a token network. And so I think even in cases where VCs uh, do have a large percentage relative to any single person, um, I think the everybody is like, getting accustomed to having much, much, much uh, overall influence when it comes to a project. Okay, so now let's actually talk a little bit about something that Rick brought up. Um, which is that I think for a long time in crypto, there's been this kind of idealistic notion that it would create a more inclusive world or it would bank the unbanked. And I was curious to know what you guys thought in terms of what is actually played out. Do you feel that the technology is accomplishing those things? And if not, why not? And what could be done better? Okay, so... I truly believe, let's take Bitcoin as a, as a case study in that. Um, forget the weight of ownership. We won't even go there for the time being. But you see all kinds of questionable applications um, of digital currencies. I, I look at El Salvador as a great example. Um, uh, actually adopting Bitcoin as a national currency is not only a huge mistake, but perhaps a crime. Um, also, the uh, stress testing of digital currencies on people of color uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America uh, is, is, I think, emblemic of the kinds of issues that we're going to have to face. It touches on all of these things. Um, because America doesn't allow for that. Um, you know, it's SEC does not allow us to, to test certain things. They're being tested in other places. They're being dropped into other localities, and usually that is um, with people who don't have much of a say. El Salvador is probably the most uh, egregious, egregious example of that. But um, all in all, I think the token economy, Bitcoin notwithstanding, Ethereum notwithstanding, but with platforms like Polkadot or Bubbler that's being built and things like that, then you're, you're actually talking about uh, egalitarianism being built into code. And I think that's a very important way to look at this, is that the trust that we talk about, the trustless networks, and these are all algorithmic issues. Now, and we have yet to get that right. So 
Human factors are always going to wait a little bit towards greed. I think that's probably part of your, your book, I think. Um, but uh, it's up to us to determine and to get right um, these sorts of code issues and not to, to test them on populations as if they're lab rats. I, I think that's a big mistake because it always has negative outcomes. So uh, obviously bias as an investor. I think free market capitalism is a powerful tool. But it, it's an algorithm for allocating resources. It, it's not an ideology. And it's garbage in, garbage out. Mm. So we've started to get this idea that like, maybe you should consider environmental considerations as part of uh, uh, the allocation of capital, not just pure profits. Maybe you should consider child labor. Like, I, obviously, we're not doing a perfect job on any of these. But, but they're starting to get baked in. Um, what excites me about blockchain is if you get this right, you can actually code this in uh, and, and uh, start to steer the direction of where, how this blockchain grows and what you, know, what you said as the goal that the free market is going to optimize for. You know. We're going to solve climate change by putting a price on carbon because then the free market all of a sudden works its magic and perfectly allocates the resources to reduce carbon because that's, that's rolled into the cost. So I, I think we're not there yet. I think we're building a platform that could potentially allow us to address some of these non-financial issues, um, you know, get, get stakeholder capitalism at play where, where uh, you actually include people. Um, Kai-Fu Lee talks about what he calls human-centered capitalism, that you, know, you might want to optimize for, uh, uh, for human happiness plus profits, maybe not just profits. Uh, and, and so I think blockchain is going to open up a lot of possibilities to start to, to look at, at capitalism in a different way. I guess blockchain is like uh, one of the most like inclusive uh, technology you could imagine. Like uh, uh, anybody could uh, get access to it. Anybody, if it's open source, it's open to anyone. It's uh, censorship resistant. But it's true. Like the, the the infrastructure currently is just not there. Whether it be like uh, fees on the network and, and uh, fees on Bitcoin, fees on Ethereum, it's it's just not there yet. Simply because the infrastructure is not uh, there yet to to uh, to cater for all the type of uh, interesting use case that you can have here. So um, this uh, coming back to the idea that uh, it's a super long-term play and, uh, and uh, there's always this big infrastructure bet that still needs to be done uh, all of the side on, on, the, on the actual uh, um, base layers on the scalability solution, the layer two layers, think of Bitcoin and Lightning, think of Ethereum and other uh, sidechain on it, think of other layer one. So it's it's still like a very long-term play where these infrastructure needs to be bailed out. And in that process, application needs to you know, start testing the boundaries of this infrastructure as we, as we move through the cycles over the years. So it seems like you mostly think that as long as the technology becomes more user-friendly, then gradually the inclusion piece will sort of solve itself. I mean, is there anything kind of more proactive now that people either can do or that you think is already working? I, I think that, that what's exciting to us is that fundamentally, architecturally, the technology is open and inclusive, meaning you all you need is some software. You don't need a bank account. You don't need a credit card. Um, you know, There's all the things that you need to join the traditional financial world. Technically, you don't need to join here. At the same time, if you look at the distribution of capital in crypto right now, it's more concentrated than it is probably in the real world because you've got early adopters who've been paying attention and there's a, you know, 
big GD coefficient and so on. And I think, as has been mentioned, the, a lot of the technology itself is still pretty raw in terms of and, and um, puts up a barrier in terms of high fees on Ethereum and other things, which um, are adding to sort of a snowball of you've got a wealthy group in in here that's participating more and earning more and so on. Um, and so in practice, it doesn't feel that way. You know, one of the areas that feels like a like an opening to me is what we're seeing in play-to-earn games. Um, so you know, you've got folks like playing Axie, mostly in the Philippines, and and earning uh, and treating that you know like a job. And I think you've there's one example where uh, the technology has opened up a window into a financial world that wasn't there before. Um, to a way broader group of people than, for instance, are participating in you know DeFi protocols or mining Bitcoin, and so I, I don't I don't think we can declare victory that this is inclusive. I think the potential for it to be very inclusive is built into the technology, um, but I also think it's going to take a while, hopefully, for for that to become more real to more people. Yeah, yeah, that uh, feels. More right because you know I'm. If anybody's been following the yield farming craze, that's something that you know you can only really benefit from it if you're a whale and you have a lot of money to invest because the fees to do that are quite high. Well, you have you have and, to solve hunger. For, I'm sorry, you have to solve hu- hunger first. You have to solve housing first. You have to solve certain human issues that allow people to actually have access to the things that we take for granted, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, it feels like, you know, just a little bit of a missed opportunity if it's just a lot of the kind of same inequality that we see. And, I'm, you know, it's not like I'm against capitalism because obviously I am for capitalism, but I'm just saying here we have this opportunity if kind of people who are already wealthy are just getting wealthier then, um, so you know. One of the things I've been watching in blockchain also is, is uh, it's a meritocracy in the sense that you don't have to go to a fancy university or work at a big company. Just, you know, how good is your code and how smart are you? Then you rise to the top. Um, so so it's, it's a meritocracy in that sense, but those people still have very similar backgrounds. And so when you, when you try to think about inclusion, it's hard for a group that's not diverse to even think about inclusion. So I, I think one of the things that, that blockchain and, 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 and the companies being built on and need to think about is how do, you, how do you get that inclusive mindset? Not just I want to be inclusive because... You know, folks like us from the same background have blind spots where you don't even know you're not being inclusive because you don't know what you don't know. Uh, yeah. But I think I think blockchain needs to grow in that sense and find ways to bring people from the outside who can who can get those voices to the table. But Dylan, does, it, does blockchain need to grow, or do we need to grow? Uh, well, I think blockchain is a great it, it's a great platform that could be built in many different ways. We just need the right voices at the table when it's when it's put in stone or when, when, it, when it when it when it's finished. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to be the... Good point. Yeah. Yeah, and one... One thing that... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, one thing that that excites me, and and I I acknowledge it's really early, is that, you know, wealth is the basis for a lot of things, right? And and a big issue is how do you make it easier to create wealth? And what... Whether you believe that blockchain assets like NFTs or tokens or anything else are actually worth anything, what is particularly exciting to me is that people can make them uh, kind of from, from scratch and build value around them. Uh, and 
And, and what you're starting to see is a, a, a community of folks who are holding assets with value as the basis for creating platforms and creating communities and and a, a thousand percent acknowledge that this is still mostly techies, you know, getting wealthy using computers, you know, just like the old things. But but the idea that you're able to form assets and and bring a broader and broader um, number of people into ownership of those assets feels important. Uh, the same way that Facebook users don't own a can't own a, face, a stake of Facebook and Uber drivers can't own a stake of Uber, you know, that model is different in crypto where you only you can start by earning the assets and holding the assets and potentially benefiting, you know, as as the these ecosystems, you know, broaden and starting with ownership feels like an important change. With over 10 million users, crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Grow your crypto with crypto.com earn which pays up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 by using the code LAURA. The link is in the description. There's a new cryptocurrency made for mobile that you can earn by downloading the Nodal Cash app. It's free, easy to use, and there's no hardware to buy. The Nodal Cash app allows you to earn crypto whether you're on the go, stuck in traffic, or even while you're sleeping. Nodal Cash is the crypto you earn 24-7. Go to nodal.com, N-O-D-L-E.com to get started today. Or go directly to nodal.io slash cash. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash cash. Yeah, and I actually um, just did an interview on my show. It's coming out next week. Um, but it's with a woman named Fareshta Faru, who is an Afghan computer scientist who founded Code to Inspire, which is a, a school in Afghanistan that teaches girls to code. And uh, she began, or her school began teaching the girls how to code, like Solidity and stuff like that. And um, they were doing other things like creating video games where they decided to make the protagonist an Afghan girl. Um, and then there were like Afghan boys playing this in a society where, you know, like typically uh, you wouldn't kind of put a girl front and center. So um, anyway, the, the point is that, you know, like the fact that her organization was able to use crypto and, and needed it because Western Union wasn't like a viable option and um, PayPal wasn't a viable option. And so this actually became like a good way for them to, uh, you know, kind of pay out the students who had earned through like doing gigs for, you know, different places and and even for collecting their own donations and things like that. So um, clearly, you know, what you were saying about how the technology is open, like it's, it's you know, uh, reaching places that typically don't have access to financial services. Um, and yet at the same time, there is still so much inequality. And I actually just want to ask one question, which is, for people who follow the space a lot, you will probably recognize anytime you go to a conference that it's mostly men and there aren't that many women. And I was curious to know just, you know, what your thoughts are on how to bring more women in the fold if you feel like there is any particular strategies that are effective. And, you know, I, as just an observer of this space, I feel like even a lot of the outreach currently to more mainstream audiences is still more directed at men, like these NFT partnerships with like the NBA or La Liga, 
you know, I mean, I have some female friends who are into sports, but um, I wouldn't say that's predominantly, you know, who are sports fans. So I was just curious for your thoughts on the gender imbalance in crypto. So, I mean, there's obviously a gender imbalance in computer science uh, in general. Um, I, I was a trustee of, of uh, Harry Mudd College for 10 years in Claremont, California. It's a small but extremely rigorous uh, uh, institution. It was one-third women. It was, you know, it's been around for about 60 years, always a male president. We hired the first female president, uh, and she showed up. Um, she wrote a handwritten note to every accepted female student every year. Uh, and then in, she's a computer scientist. Um, in computer science, she switched the introductory language to Python, which was not so well known at that point. So everyone learned a new language together. It was relatively simple. They switched the, the, uh, uh, the, they switched the, the kind of projects they would do to be more sort of projects and result oriented than, you know, grindy tasks. Uh, and brought the number of women in computer science up to around 50% in the major. And so, you know, it, it was really just about, uh, uh, about it, it's about initial structure and sort of who gets in the door. Like, you know, if you, if you show up as a computer genius, as a young guy, a lot of these places just, just push that through. And do you have ideas on how that could be applied here in this, in crypto or like a decentralized web? So, I mean, I don't know specifically, but like that's the mindset of, of you need to open it up and you need to, uh, you, you need to explain to the, to the potential programmers and participants what they can do with it to change the world more than just sort of the, the nitty gritty aspects of the, of the technology. But it's, I mean, it's obvious, uh, you know, you have a trained base that's, that's overwhelmingly male. So it's going to be, a, it's going to be a hard to shift that uh, on a dime. Can I, can I just add, I think that's correct. I think that there's an institutional approach to it. But you could also stop having crypto bro meetings in strip clubs. You can... There's a lot of things that we do that, that we take for granted. You can stop painting girls gold and having them dance at, at, at Bitcoin conventions. Seriously. Simple stuff. Simple stuff. Um, with Faresh, I'm glad you referenced her. She's a friend of mine. And, and Roya, her ex-partner, Roya Maboub, is a good friend of mine. Roya is also a friend of mine. And, and I helped them with BitLanders, with Francesco Rulli, when they first started in this business. Oh. So they were helping Afghani uh, women, but also Afghani young men, but mostly women, young women, uh, hold money through Bitcoin in the form of Amazon cards. Because, of course, in Afghanistan at the time, it may be the same now, um, women couldn't hold money their brothers, their husbands, their significant men in their life would simply take it from them, all right? So the phone produced the opportunity to have a wallet that they could own. So this has been a question throughout this space, in tech in general, but really in crypto, it's, it's especially important. And I forget crypto, in blockchain, it's especially important. Uh, because we do have these tools, to, uh, to Dylan's point, uh, you know, to everyone's point, we have these tools. The question is, how are we going to implement them? You know, it's almost like we have to throw a grenade into our own, the seat of our own souls and figure out what's really important, what kinds of things do we want to invest our attention in and not having our attention monetized by other platforms, but making our attention the platform. And, but is, so is there something that you all as investors feel that you can do to address this issue, or do you sort of feel like the source of the problem is kind of outside of your scope. 
Nothing's outside. I mean, I think investors can and should play a big role in increasing diversity of all kinds in their portfolio and the companies they back and the companies they work with and the boards that they're on and, and so on. And I think everybody can, many firms are taking this on in different ways. Uh, I know we are. Um, I think it probably starts with, at the very least, keeping track. You know, we've been tracking for the last year over, you know, who we're backing, um, you know, keeping better track of, of that kind of information. We've you know, taking it upon ourselves to try and be more proactive in a lot of ways about increasing diversity in our portfolio. I think investors are in a position of, you know, some influence and power and have networks and and have a, a burden to diversify their networks, you know, and bring, you know, new people into the fold. Um, another part of it is, like, trying to identify leaders and, and organizations that are doing good work, you know, adjacent to the investing. So like in crypto, there's a, a group called G256, which is like focused on, you know, bringing diversity into blockchain. There sh- should be more and there will be, and there, you know, there are female leaders of a, a, a couple of very high profile crypto projects, but that's not enough. Um, and so it's a, a cliche and terrible answer to say that it will take time, but, but I think it will take time, but I, I do also think that it won't change unless, um, People focus on it. Okay, so now we're going to really switch tacks because this is um, also relevant to investing in a decentralized world, and it's a hot topic right now, which is the regulatory environment here in the U.S. Um, I think a lot of people know for a long time there was kind of the sense that there wasn't a lot of clarity, and maybe now uh, we're getting a little bit more clarity um, than it seems uh, what I would say people in the industry perceive as negative. Um, so I'm curious to know how this is affecting investment activity uh, in the crypto and blockchain space for U.S. investors. Clearly, um, it's, uh, it's, it's always been like a, a, a tough thing to, to work in crypto just to get access to bank accounts. And uh, my previous company back in, in 2014, even though we were not touching with crypto directly, you had this thing with like uh, uh, to get access to bank account, and that was always a big struggle. And it gets like even worse with uh, with like uh, all the regulation for crypto exchanges or protocols that uh, that are building stuff that uh, that looks like uh, security or that uh, uh, engage in, in in trades. And and as investors, we see that um, uh, we're based in the U.S. We're structured as a U.S. venture fund. Um, and we sometimes cannot have access to uh, to, to some projects simply because uh, they they start to uh, not accept any U.S. investors, so that they, they 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 are outside of the of the scope of the U.S. regulation. And um, and like you can still get uh, back these projects by having like some offshore entities. But we see that like as investors for for some projects, they simply do not accept any more uh, U.S. investors, and it looks like. Um, yeah, part of the innovation is going to uh, to go on the, on some other jurisdiction because, like entrepreneurs, they, they need clarity. Uh, that's the worst thing that you that you can have is like this uncertainty on the, what's going to happen or the regulators going to change their mind. I think what's lacking is to have like some 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 guidelines, some frameworks where you can you know a little bit how you're going to fit in that box. Uh, and if that's not the case, I guess like uh, entrepreneurs and companies will go the path of least resistance. Uh, and go in some uh, jurisdiction that are more friendly uh, for their for their business. So yeah, I I, I want to hear other people's answers to that, but I'm also curious, like how does that affect the development of this decentralized web? If you have kind of these different silos, I'm just curious if you guys are 
trying to solve for that? Or if you think it's just going to be like that, there will be one decentralized web in the U.S. and another decentralized web elsewhere? Or You know, I, I, I think what some consider um, a hindrance with U.S. regulations, I think we're missing opportunities because we're looking at the space as a Wall Street casino and not as a place where we can actually grow ideas and we can grow access and utility. The, the, the regulations are clear. We can build inclusive structures, but we keep defaulting to casinos. We keep defaulting to existing structures like Wall Street. Now, who says that the crypto space has to look like Wall Street? Who says that we have to focus on returns as opposed to outcomes? This is us saying that. The, the regulators have actually given us a, a straight path into a different way of looking at this whole thing, yet we continue to try to force it into the the square hole of, uh, of Wall Street. So that's really a lot on us. I mean, we, we could change that calculus if we can change the idea of value and make that something that people want to be a part of, and we can build other structures that then help us trade in value that way through communities. But we keep going to the same stuff, and we get the same results, and then we start crying about, oh, what the SEC is doing to us. Hmm. Does anyone want to add? I mean, this is one of the, the most complicated, difficult issues in the space. I think at the at the, the very beginning, there's a, a sort of impedance mismatch here because this technology establishes trust in a different way through transparency, through cryptographic proofs, um, through open source code, and um, and and the and it also enables the creation of sort of these digital artifacts that can look a little bit like money, can look a little bit like stocks, can look a little bit like commodities, can look a little bit like packets of data. And so it's, it touches on everything. Um, and a lot of those are regulated sectors. And so I think there's going to continue to be a challenge to figure out what is this stuff and who should regulate it. And I think um, it, it, what we're seeing right now is a combination of every different sort of regulator looks at it through their lens and sees it as the thing that they regulate. Um, and eventually, I think, and also is whether it's, you know, on the financial crime side, the security side, or other places, is looking to regulate through the existing mechanisms, which is, you know, reporting and, and filings and so on. And I think what I would hope we would see over time are new regulatory structures that are more native to this medium that understand it for what it is, um, and you know, and ways of, and by structures I mean like bodies, um, and then also regulatory mechanisms that can really harness the openness and transparency and open source nature of this technology to achieve the sort of outcomes which we, we want, which are safety, integrity, you know, investor protection, and so on. But but over time, I think come at it in a different way. And what I hope we don't do is is, is sort of destroy the technology by um, trying to regulate it in the old way um, before we get to see um, the benefits of it at a broader scale. And, you know, we run the risk of pushing more and more offshore uh, in, into other jurisdictions where there's, you know, less uh, safety and, and, and so on for consumers. So it's a really, really, really hard problem. And I think it's front and center for every investor and every project operating in the space. So do you think that what might happen is that we'll end up with kind of crypto slash decentralized web for the U.S. and then 
a different version for elsewhere? Or, or And also, Nick, it seemed like you were saying that you wish that there were either a different new agency or at least a new set of rules for crypto specifically. Like you're saying you feel like the old regulations just don't apply here? I'm not saying they don't apply. And, and I think the concepts of, um, you know, protecting against financial crimes of various kinds and protecting investors and, and having markets with integrity, these are there are important reasons why we have regulations that get at all those things. I just think that um, it will take a while for us to adapt the mechanisms uh, to achieve them that kind of fit with the way that this technology works. I think there are a lot of built-in benefits in this technology towards those I, th- those goals, um, which we would want, which we hope to keep persisting um, and take advantage of to harness the goals. And I think my guess is that over time, that's going to result in new new agencies with new techniques. I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, no. I Yeah, at the moment, it really doesn't look like it's going to happen tomorrow. Um, okay, so I, I could keep asking questions, but if anybody would like to ask a question of the panelists, you can come right up to this mic here and, and go ahead. Um, hey, everyone. My name is Alejandro. Uh, what do you see the role of institutions sort of balancing out with individuals? Um, and will this technology sort of just set a new framework for institutions to take advantage of the automation that's going on or... Um, yeah, sort of like, what, what do you see the role of institutions in this new decentralized future? And, and actually, can you um, just elaborate on what you mean by institutions? Do you mean like Yeah, maybe like financial? Facebook, banks, et cetera. Will they use this technology to just uh, deploy their services more efficiently, um, which then you just kind of like reinstitute the same frameworks that we have now, or um, I guess open up to, to a long tail of uh, startups and smaller companies being able to take advantage of, of this technology? Using existing frameworks, institutions will always get it wrong. Look at Facebook Libra. Look at credits before that. Um, we, we have to, people like us, actually have to build new sorts of frameworks that institutions have a place in. I, I, I can't answer that question, personally. I don't know if you guys can. I mean, I'll just give one example. I know a lot of the conversation at this conference has been about the role of traditional tech platforms, Google, Facebook, Apple, so on. And I think one of the directional trends we see here that we're most excited about is the potential for this technology to migrate control of data and and other sort of technical infrastructure away from a, a company, an institutional company, and more into the hands of users. So, for instance, the, the data that you publish, you know, in a social networking context or blogging context, Today, all gets piped, you know, through uh, these platforms, where and that's where they exercise control and add advertising and all this other stuff. And, and I think what one of the many things that Web three is changing is an architecture where users have more direct control over their data. You know, signing signing data packets and messages, encrypting them, storing them in different places, re-aggregating, you know, them in a in a different way. And so I think the the role of the data aggregator in Web3, I think, is going to be very different than the data aggregator in Web2. Um, and that's one of the themes that, that we think is important. So go ahead. It was a technology that was like, uh, from its beginning, uh, as an asset, as a technology, something that was for retail before institution, like for, for Bitcoin, for, for like uh, crypto assets, I say, like it was for retail users. 
and and uh, and it's after on the, the, that uh, institution came in to, to to get access to it because they just couldn't at the beginning. And I guess with that technology, it's similar that uh, it's mostly like new developers that are going to build some frameworks that are going to compete against like, the, the the actual institution. And um, and it's contradictory a little bit for for them. Like they they build their trust through like uh, time uh, through uh, and and with that they can like monetize like. Uh, uh, that are aggregated and attention of users within their platform. I guess, like, uh, well, Web3 give uh, Web3 and this technology give the opportunity for new companies to, you know, have their time to trust to be like tremendously faster and build trust within the community and build like new new networks uh, based on that. And, and getting accelerating this time to trust is super important to compete against this, uh, these institutions and get like some some better forms of of product that are more like. Uh, um, like uh, concern about data privacy, data ownership, and that kind of thing. So I think the, the part of the idea of, of unfinished labs and, and Project Liberty is if you build an open source protocol that's a social graph and you make that available to everybody, um, but you own your data, if you like Facebook, then, then hook Facebook into it and they'll continue to give what, what they give. If you want to choose a different one, you turn Facebook off, you turn someone else on. If you want to build your own, you build your own. If you want a, a, a friend to build one for you. Uh, so I, I think you know, the, the, the Facebooks will still exist and I think there'll be great opportunities to build new versions of Facebook, but rather than being big because they own your data and won't give it back, they'll be big because they use your data to provide value to you and if they stop providing value, you, you give it to someone else. So, so I, I think that, that, that's the goal. If you, if, you, if you separate the data from the company, then, then you see what the company really can do um, and what value they can really give you. I, mean, I, I wouldn't think of Facebook as an institution. I would think of governments as institutions or libraries or things like that. Uh, but I, the, go on. Yes, go ahead. I was just want to ask a question, um, and Rick you know, kind of led us to the issue around, you know, the sexism and, and greed and the culture that, you know, has prevailed in the world led by Peter Thiel. There's a number of articles out today, not to call anybody out, but Palantir has just, you know, gotten away with murder, not paying taxes, just building billions and billions of dollars in wealth. And uh, having just gotten more government contracts than, you know, could ever be thought of. So what is going to change a culture that has been repeating itself. I was with Drexel Burnham Land Bear. The Predator's Ball is alive in crypto now. So it's like, you know, what's happening? It's 40 years later, and we're still doing the same thing and expecting different results. Yeah, I, I almost want to answer this myself, being the woman on the panel, even though I'm the moderator. And that's to say that, you know... Um, it's pretty shocking that Me Too only happened in 2018. It's, uh, you know, obviously very, very recent past, though. It's kind of interesting just how ingrained sexism can be and how difficult and hard it is to change things, but it is changing. Um, I do think, actually, you know, crypto has the full range. It has, uh, you know, a lot of sexism like we see in a lot of parts of the world. Um, but there's also plenty of lovely people. I'm a woman in the space and I deal with men all the time. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say I've had like too much sexism. I would say though that one thing that is interesting to me that I've noticed is that, um, 
people recognize and they will call out racism. If women in the space bring up sexism, uh, there's a lot of denial and a lot of pushback and a lot of things that are said like, oh, this technology, you know, has no barriers. Women just aren't interested. And it's like, oh, wow, like, really? You, you don't recognize the barriers? Like, you, you're, you think that this is a true meritocracy here? So um, anyway, but, you know, I do think that things are changing. It's just, um, as our panelists said, that a, a conscious approach helps a lot. And um, I think, you know, a lot of great ideas were discussed here, and I think that hopefully we'll see more implementation and change. Laura, can I say um, one thing for 10 seconds? Yes. Literally, I know we have to wrap up. I know, we have to wrap so, up. So, look, if I want to leave you with anything, and I think if any of us want to leave you with anything here, it would be that a decentralized web is a democratized web. A democracy requires eternal vigilance. And so you have to take your attention off of distractions and on to your own self-sovereignty. If you're going to make this work, because it doesn't work without you, we're just people who help fund this stuff or we're people who help build this stuff. But really, it's about people like yourselves. And if, as a whole, we're going to let distraction rule us and put our attention into things that don't matter, then that's what we're going to get as a people. So where we point our attention is what we're going to get out of it. That's all I have to say. You're here. Great. Excellent last words. All right. Thank you all so much for attending this panel. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, move over China, the U.S. now leads the way in BTC hash rate. According to the University of Cambridge, the United States now accounts for more of Bitcoin's hash rate than any other country in the world. As of August 2021, more than one-third, 35.4%, of Bitcoin's hash rate, which is a measure of the computing power securing the network, was located in the United States. The figure marks a drastic shift in mining power. Last summer, the U.S. only accounted for 4.2% of the hash rate and for 21.8% in May of this year. Following behind the U.S. in terms of hash rate was Kazakhstan at 18.1%, Russia at 11.2%, and Canada at 9.6%. No other country currently houses more than 5% of Bitcoin's hash rate. Just like the U.S., Kazakhstan, Russia, and Canada have each seen their share of the global hash rate increase over the past year. This upward trend in global hash rate for these countries coincides with an equally severe decrease in hash rate for China, which began cracking down on cryptocurrency mining in earnest earlier this year. Data from Cambridge recorded precisely 0% of Bitcoin's hash rate coming from China in July of 2021, marking an abrupt about-face for a country that used to be a mining powerhouse. For context, in August of 2020, China miners made up 67.1% of Bitcoin's hash rate, as recently as May of 2021, China still accounted for 34.3%. Michelle Rauch's digital assets lead at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance believes that the shift in power away from China is a positive development for the health of Bitcoin's network. The effect of the Chinese crackdown is an increased geographic distribution of hash rate across the world, which can be considered a positive development for network security and the decentralized principles of Bitcoin, Rauch wrote. Stripe's re-entry to Bitcoin starts with engineers. Stripe's beginning to assemble a team of crypto engineers to navigate the payment company's journey into Web3. Guillaume Ponsin, the former head of engineering for banking and financial products at Stripe, will be heading the team. The engineers will be joining a brand new team at Stripe and will, quote, 
design and build the core components that we need to support crypto use cases, as the job description states. Ponsine says he is looking for engineers and designers to build the future of Web3 payments. The job posts do not specify which cryptocurrency Stripe will be working on or what aspects of blockchain technology Stripe will be attempting to leverage. A Coindesk report says that the company, quote, wants to remain tech neutral while building in crypto. And perhaps a hint at where Stripe's focus will be, Stripe CEO John Collison described crypto as, quote, a very exciting tool in solving the issue of cross-border transactions earlier this year. Notably, this is not the payment company's first time down the crypto rabbit hole. Stripe was an early supporter of Bitcoin and one of the first major companies to accept the cryptocurrency back in 2014. That being said, Stripe ended its Bitcoin program in 2018, saying that customer demand was not there for Bitcoin-based payment rails. Centralized exchanges love NFTs. Two of the most popular cryptocurrency exchanges in the U.S. are moving in at NFTs. On Monday, FTX US, the American subsidiary of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX, launched a Solana-based NFT marketplace. Dubbed FTX NFTs, the marketplace plans to add support for Ethereum NFTs in the next few weeks. Unlike decentralized markets, like OpenSea or SolanArt, FTX NFT will allow users to purchase NFTs with US dollars via credit card or ACH payments. However, with the ability to pay in cash comes the cost of KYC, as all users must undergo know-your-customer identity checks to be eligible to trade on the platform. In a similar move, Coinbase, the larger exchange by far in this story, announced a waitlist for Coinbase NFT. Though support for other chains is expected, the new platform will initially only allow users to mint, purchase, and showcase Ethereum-based NFTs. Interestingly, a Coinbase will be using self-custody wallets, so users will not need to go through KYC check to utilize the NFT platform. Coinbase seems bullish on NFTs as an economic force. Quote, Our ambition with Coinbase NFT is to allow everyone to benefit from their creative spark, to contribute to a future where the creator economy isn't a small subset of the real economy, but a central driver, Coinbase said. According to Decrypt, over 1.4 million users have already signed up for the waitlist, a number that ended up briefly shutting down the site due to heavy traffic. In related news, Sotheby's is launching a new platform called Sotheby's Metaverse to auction NFTs for fiat, ETH, BTC, and stablecoins. Next headline. Crypto Mom wants a crypto safe harbor. Other SEC commissioners disagree. Two commissioners at the Securities and Exchange Commission disagree on crypto regulation. Commissioner Hester Peirce, a.k.a. CryptoMom, is widely known for a more favorable stance toward crypto and has even proposed that token issuers have a three-year safe harbor period to develop their coins. Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw made waves by saying Peirce's safe harbor proposal could potentially be harmful to the crypto community. She said, quote, Had a safe harbor been in place during the initial coin offering or ICO boom of 2017 and 2018, I think the results would have been even worse for investors and the markets. ICOs and other digital asset offerings raised billions from investors, but most never delivered on their promises. Commissioner Peirce, for her part, continues to take the SEC to task, as she did in this speech at the Texas Blockchain Summit on October 8th. Regarding the prevailing attitude inside the SEC that digital assets already have legal clarity, Peirce said, quote, the idea that there is legal clarity as to when crypto assets are securities 
must come as a surprise to the lawyers advising crypto projects that have struggled with this issue for years. On the recent trend of Americans being geo-blocked from airdrops due to regulatory uncertainty, Peirce added, quote, Widespread geo-blocking of Americans should concern American regulators, even if it does lighten their regulatory load. Take a look at Twitter after one of these airdrops. The SEC is not being thanked. And finally, after lamenting over the jurisdictional jockeying between regulators, Peirce turned to stablecoins, saying, quote, I believe that we must take strong account of the potential benefits of stablecoins, including the possibility that a U.S. dollar stablecoin might support the role of the dollar in the global economy. To wrap up her thoughts, Peirce took to Twitter, writing, quote, If government wants to bring law to crypto, it should behave lawfully. In related news, White House Mull's executive order for crypto oversight. Bloomberg reports that the Biden administration is weighing an executive order on cryptocurrency. The order would task federal agencies to study the crypto industry and offer recommendations regarding financial regulation, innovation, and national security. The executive order is still under consideration, but the administration will soon announce its strategy for cryptocurrencies, according to Bloomberg sources, who are described as being familiar with the matter. Speaking of crypto oversight, three separate crypto entities unveiled proposals for regulation. Coinbase published a piece titled, Digital Asset Policy Proposal, Safeguarding America's Financial Leadership. A16Z unveiled, An Agenda for the Future of the Internet. And FTX announced its own set of policy goals for crypto market regulation. Clearly, the topic is on the mind of many people. Time for fun bits. Bitcoin is worthless, according to JPM CEO, Jamie Dimon. Bitcoin is trading above $50,000 and has a market capitalization of over $1 trillion. However, according to JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, the emperor of cryptocurrency has no value. Quote, I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless, said Dimon during an Institute of International Finance event on Monday. Dimon's words were on brand. The billionaire CEO has spoken out against Bitcoin numerous times, dating back to 2015 when Bitcoin was priced at $400. Diamond went on to clarify that his negative stance on Bitcoin does not affect JP Morgan. Quote, our clients are adults. They disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access, concluded Diamond. Funnily enough, just at publishing time, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman said on the bank's third quarter earnings call, quote, I don't think crypto's a fad. I don't think it's going away. All right. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about all of our speakers and Unfinished Live, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. <laughs>